Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Rob Armstrong, who's the head of our comment team. Also from New York, we're joined by Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Alistair Gray, our US financial correspondent. This week, we'll be discussing the latest outburst from Jamie Dimon, the JP Morgan chief, who was talking about being embarrassed to be an American. We'll also take a look at Goldman Sachs' new dress code for its tech staff, And finally, a roundup of the Wall Street results from New York. So, Martin, you've been reporting about Jamie Dimon's latest comments. He's not happy about being an American. He's embarrassed, he says. Well, Jamie didn't respond well to a question that was put to him on the second quarter earnings call last week about fixed income trading and why... JP Morgan's fixed income trading, which has been historically one of the main drivers of earnings growth at the biggest US bank by market value. And it was down 19% year on year in the second quarter. But he said, who cares about fixed income trading in the last two weeks in June, and launched into a tirade about the political gridlock in Washington, and how that was a much more serious issue and harangued the journalists on the call, telling them they should be focused on that much more important issue than whether fixed income trading was up or down in the latest quarter. And he said it's almost an embarrassment being an American citizen traveling around the world and listening to the stupid, I won't repeat the swear word that he used, we have to deal with in this country. And he pointed to the need to reform taxes, regulation and education. He was very complimentary about France's new president, Emmanuel Macron. And he said he's been on recent trips to Israel, Ireland and France. And he said that these are three countries that deeply recognise the importance of having a business tax scheme for jobs and wage growth. So he's really focused on the macro picture. And I think that that's understandable when you look at what's happened to the share price of JP Morgan and the big US banks since Donald Trump was elected on this promise of rising interest rates, rising spending, lower taxes, and, you know, a pretty ambitious reform program, their share prices shot up some 30% after that. Now that that all looks to be getting bogged down in political gridlock in Washington, The share prices of the big US banks are starting to lose some of those big gains that they made. And I suppose a slowdown in fixed income trading is not helping either. No, it's a familiar mantra as well from Mr. Diamond, isn't it? Because I remember him saying not that long ago, a year or two ago, that the whole regulatory agenda in the US and the fact that some rules are imported from global rules as being very un-American, that's something that's clearly a bugbear for him and also, I guess, a useful distraction from quarterly volatility in their numbers. We'll keep an eye on Mr. Diamond and obviously there's a valid point about Washington gridlock. 
Let's move on to our second very serious item and news that Goldman Sachs has given a break to its tech staff, allowing them to dress how they like. This is an effort presumably to retain staff who attempted to go to Silicon Valley employers. There's a story reported on by Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. And here to discuss it with me is Rob Armstrong, who's our chief leader writer and also sometime fashion expert. Rob, um, welcome. What do you make of this anything goes attitude by Goldman? Well, of course, the Goldman announcement follows an announcement just a year ago by JP Morgan that not just its tech workers, but staff in general could go with the old polo shirt and khakis provided they had the sense to know when they were going into an important meeting, they had to put a suit on. So this is definitely part of a larger trend. And it does seem to me that the era of the standard dress code is gone, and there's no bringing it back. Silicon Valley has won. The only question is whether we should be happy about that or not. I know you'll be happy about it. I'll be We're happy. We're sitting here. You are. You dress like a hobo. <laughs> We're sitting here, Rob. I am in an open neck shirt and you are in a very smart shirt and tie. Yeah. Although without a jacket, I noticed. Yeah. Having said that, you asked the question, should we be happy about it? I suppose you could recall a time back in the late 90s where mm. there was this other tech boom, which influenced dress codes as well at that time yes. and ended in tears. Do you see parallels here? Is it a lack of seriousness that's being uh, displayed here? The point I like to make about this is that most people who talk down dressing up for work think of clothes or fancy clothes or more formal clothes as a way of expressing rank. It's a way of showing other people how fancy you are and dominating them. And therefore, the end of such clothes is the end of this kind of nasty domination, interpersonal domination. But I think there's a forgotten role that fancy clothes play in expressing a kind of humbleness, in saying, actually, this is my uniform, and the reason I wear a uniform is my job is actually more important than I am. And I'm part of an organization that's bigger than I am, and I'm part of a project that's bigger than I am. I mean, I always think of uh, Boris Johnson in a different context in this. Is Here's a guy who has this devil-may-care style and rumpled this and his hair is uncut, which is very charming in a certain context. But when you're playing a very important game where people's livelihoods are at stake, it suddenly looks a little less appealing because what he's saying is, this is all just good fun to me, and I'm sort of bigger than this job. And... Your point about the foreign secretary, who obviously has a big job now, he's not just a kind of buffoon politician in Britain anymore. Does that principle also apply to the tech industry, where obviously this kind of dress down attitude is very well established? And yet, you know, the Googles and Facebooks of the world are hugely valuable companies that the kind of arrogance that you are suggesting goes hand in hand with dress down style doesn't seem to have infected the companies. No, I don't think so. But it'll be interesting to see when it becomes more and more acknowledged the huge role that these companies play in our lives and the effect that the decisions they make have on everyone. I wonder if their hoodies will become less appealing. I'm not entirely sure. I think another aspect of this that is not attended to sufficiently is about gender balance. So I was talking to a management consultant recently who was consulting with a Silicon Valley company, and basically it was a very casual dress place, and the CEO always wore jeans and a plaid shirt. And of course, that became the uniform. You know, instead of the suit everybody wore, everybody has the jeans and a plaid shirt. But for women, a lot of them don't feel comfortable in a plaid shirt. 
And so she was talking to these senior female executives, and they were saying, plaid shirt, what am I supposed to do? Where am I at with this? Right? So once again, it's not as simple as saying less dress code means easier life, more fairness, more egalitarianism, et cetera, et cetera. It's a many-faceted debate, and we'll have you back again to talk about it, Rob, next time as a big news item. Thanks very much. Well, let's now go over to New York, where Laura Noonan and Alistair Gray have been talking about the Wall Street results that we've had in over the past few days. We had two sets of big bank results this morning. Goldman Sachs and Bank of America both told us important stories about what's going on in the sector. Let's start with Goldman, where it looked like another bruising quarter. Just how bad is it, and what does the bank need to do to turn this around? Fixed income revenues fell 40% at Goldman Sachs in the second quarter of the year. That's obviously a very big drop, and it's a far bigger drop than we saw at the other peers. So if we think back to the results last week, JP Morgan saw their fixed income revenues fall 19%, Citi saw theirs fall 6%. So Goldman Sachs is obviously having a much bigger drop. When you talk to analysts, it's not as bad as it sounds because analysts had largely expected this. Goldman Sachs is particularly exposed because of the nature of its client base. It tends towards hedge funds and institutional investors. Those were particularly badly affected by the lack of volatility in the second quarter. Also, Goldman Sachs is heavily skewed towards the commodities business, and that has been particularly challenged. So investors and analysts say that there are reasons why Goldman Sachs would have been worse hit. However, it's still a very big number. And there are certainly questions being asked now about whether Goldman Sachs can continue to carry this cost base if we do continue to see the market like this, because if you think about it, this is a second quarter in a row where Goldman Sachs has done far worse than the other big Wall Street investment banks in fixed income. And at some point, you have to right-size your cost base to meet the new market environment if you believe that the new market environment is going to be a permanent thing rather than just a kind of temporary blip. And certainly, we're looking at six months of it now, so maybe we are into the territory where this is something people need to actually adjust their businesses for. The other thing to say is that Goldman Sachs' earnings for a second quarter were actually higher overall year on year. That's because they made a big gain from their investing and lending businesses, largely because of the private equity stakes that they have and the private equity business now. While analysts don't value those earnings as much because they tend to be more volatile, nonetheless, it does help. And certainly, it did allow Goldman Sachs to report a top-line number. Their overall earnings and their overall revenue were both actually beating expectations. A B of A then, the big story was about interest rates and margins. It looks like the bank isn't doing as well as people expected from the Fed's increase in short-term rates. What were executives saying this morning? So in the Bank of America results, their interest margins really seem to be coming under pressure. So the US banks were all expected to have favourable net interest income trends because the Federal Reserve has increased interest rates and the theory goes that as interest rates increase, banks can charge a bigger margin between the amount that they charge customers to lend and the amount that they pay for deposits. Now, in the case of B of A, their net interest margin actually fell sequentially. So it was 2.39% for the first quarter and then 2.34% for the second quarter. Those aren't big falls, but still it's heading in the wrong direction and something the bank really has to try to explain to people. We also saw some commentary last week from JP Morgan where they actually pulled back their 2017 guidance for net interest income, they insisted that this was just noise and that overall interest rates were actually playing out as they expected. But there is some concern building that maybe banks are finding the transition to higher interest rates more challenging than they expected. And maybe the gain that we all thought would come automatically for banks once interest rates began to rise, maybe that isn't going to be such a clear cut thing. 
So what do you expect both sets of results to tell us about the banks who have yet to report? That's Morgan Stanley and the big uh, European banks which begin disclosing their earnings next week. So in the US, we have one big bank left to report. That's going to be Morgan Stanley and their earnings are out on Wednesday morning. Overall, we would expect them to also see falls in the trading business. They shouldn't be impacted as badly on the fixed income side because they made big cuts to that business. So in that sense, we're not expecting anything as dramatic as the Goldman Sachs figures today. If we think forward to the European banks, there was a note out from JP Morgan analysts in London overnight. They were saying that they saw some marginal positives from the US bank results so far for some of the European. They point particularly to City, which talked about positive trends from the European, Middle East and Africa region when they announced their results last Friday. Also, the European banks, some of them have already taken big cuts to their fixed income businesses. There I'm talking about the likes of like Credit Suisse and UBS. So from that point, those falls should be contained. However, there are also two big European banks who have very big fixed income franchises, Barclays and Deutsche Bank. So we will be watching those banks particularly closely for signs of stress. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin here in the studio and Rob Armstrong, our guest. Also, Laura Noonan and Alistair Gray in New York. And also, thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.